Good morning. Good morning. Why don't you uh, come back to us? Come and join us. Um, good morning. Welcome. Let me add my uh, note of welcome to Andrew. My name is Jeremy. I'm one of the pastors here. I know I haven't met all of you. Just to give you a bit of background, I um, lived in London for about 10 years, married to Jen. We've got a little boy called Caleb who's about eight months old. Um, I've been working for the church for about a year and a half. Um, and so hopefully if I haven't met you yet already, we'll have a chance to get to know you uh, over coffee afterwards. And um, this morning, uh, I have the privilege of beginning a new series. We're looking for the next four weeks at a series entitled Love, Sex, and Relationships. And someone asked me before the service, does Andrew just give you the juicy topics to be talking about? And that's not true. He's going to be doing, uh, continuing the series next week. Um, but I'm going to be starting the series off this morning. So first of all, then, why are we looking at the question of relationships? Maybe some of you might say, that doesn't feel very spiritual. Um, maybe we should be thinking about uh, prayer or something like that. And the answer is, if you look closely into the Bible, you'll see that all the way through the Bible, the theme of relationships is absolutely evident. So right from the beginning, when we look at the character of God, we would say God is love. Before human beings even existed, there was a relationship between the three members of the Trinity within the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in love together for all eternity. And actually, he's made us in his image. That means he's created us to have relationship with him, and also to have relationship with each other. Actually, the whole narrative of the Bible is him uh, pursuing us, drawing us back into relationship. And of course, at the very center of the Christian message is what we call the gospel, the idea, the truth, that Jesus has come on a reconciliation mission, a mission to draw us back into relationship with him. And actually, as we're restored to relationship with God, we then also... Um, that has profound implications for the way we relate to each other. It's impossible to have what I would call an individualized understanding of Christianity, where it's just you and God. Actually, as soon as you become a Christian, it should start to change the way you relate to other people. And actually, you see this through just by the pure volume of material on this question in the New Testament. Think about, uh, we're going to be looking at 1 Corinthians this morning, but look at the book of Ephesians, one of Paul's letters to one of the churches. And the first three chapters are all about what God has done for them and their relationship with him. But then basically the next two chapters, almost half the book is focused on the question of relationships. And last, last couple of weeks, we, um, we've been looking at the whole question of community and relationships there. So this is a really important priority to be thinking about. What that means is if you're not a Christian here, Actually, as we talk about some of the practicalities, we talk about what relationships look like for Christians. Actually, my hope is you'll get a glimpse of the character of God. You'll see more about what God is like. If you are a Christian here, then I'm going to be starting with the assumption that we have already said, um, God, you can have uh, authority over my life. And that's, we're starting from that assumption. So we're saying, okay, now we've given God authority over our lives. How would he direct our steps in the area of relationships? And the reason I think this is so important is because Actually, it's very easy to, I think, see this, that we are in danger of being discipled by the world. What I mean by that is that uh, most people, when they're thinking about how they conduct their relationships, are not um, going getting a manual and reading that manual. Most of us don't consult manuals about how we do relationships. What happens is we tend to observe relationships as we're growing up and now, and that's still the case today, and whether that be in the, in the kind of uh, relationships that we're in, but also in, on the media and all sorts of different influences. And actually, my concern really is then that we, as Christians, are kind of subtly or unconsciously imbibing, taking in all sorts of ideas from the culture and from the world, which inform our understanding of what relationships should look like. And this is maybe totally unconscious. But actually, as we, as, so what I want to do today and what we're going to do over the next four weeks is say, what do distinctively Christian relationships look like? And have we almost, have we accepted or taken on any ideas from our culture which actually we need to reject and say they're not helpful and they're wrong? Today, we're going to be looking at the question of what does it mean to be Christian and single? But as, as we unpack that, I think will also give us really good insights into what um, our non-romantic relationships, what our friendships will look like. As we think about the question of singleness, I think immediately, I think it's probably not fair, if you've been in the church for any serious, uh, length of time, you'll see this is an area of immense confusion. I think um, this is t- two reasons. One is obviously the cultural influences and all the different ideas that we're hearing from our culture. The second is because sometimes churches have just taught really unhelpfully on this question. I didn't grow up in the church. I became a Christian at university, but, so I didn't experience some of this stuff, but I don't know if anyone's heard purity rings or things like that, like all sorts of different weird stuff that you're just like, where does that come from? And, you know, so the church has kind of developed a lot of different teaching on this subject that may, as we might see, as, we, as Paul's going to um, pop some of our, of our false 
assumptions around singleness for us today. Some of those questions, though, I think we're asking when we think about singleness. I think many of us who are single might be asking, why does it feel that the church puts more emphasis on marriage than singleness? Maybe perhaps if you're single, you might feel that the church has somehow sometimes treated single people like second-class citizens. It feels like the church honors marriage more. David David Bennett, a former gay activist who became a Christian, said this, Even in my church, friendship seems secondary to romantic love. It seemed like everyone had been spending more time reading Jane Austen than the New Testament. I can honestly say that's not me. (laughs) Or watching 90s rom-coms. Again, not particularly me, although Love Actually, I would highly recommend. More than the work of the Spirit. There's a danger that we've, exactly what we talked about before, subtly imbibed some of the values of the world on this. But I think there are also some more personal questions if you're single. Things like, how do I find intimacy as a single person? How long will I be single for? Will I be single for the rest of my life? And with that, sometimes that accompanies that is a kind of sense of loss about um, not having your, a family of your own. When we, as Christians, we must start with the assumption that singleness um, means celibacy, means no sex outside of marriage. And so many people will be asking when they're thinking about singleness, how can I stay celibate in a sex-obsessed world? And I think all of this really boils down to the central question. Is singleness a viable, fulfilling way of life? Is it a plausible route to happiness? Now, I don't want in any way to undermine any sense of confusion or loss or pain around this topic that some of you are feeling. But I want to set out the Christian view of singleness when we, when we look at what Paul has to say about this in 1 Corinthians. And actually, as we do that, I think you'll see that it's much more hopeful and purposeful than most people realize. But also, I just want to note to you, those of you who are married here, I want you to encourage you to hear this word communally as well as individually. Of course, as we do this, you're going to find individual implications, whether you're single or married. But actually, you've got to remember that the teaching in the New Testament is far more communal than we typically think. Paul writes um, letters to whole churches. In Romans chapter 12, he says, you belong to one another. What he means is you have a vested interest in each other's flourishing. That means if you're married, I want you to be thinking today as you hear this, how can we, how can I as a married person help my single brothers and sisters uh, live flourishing and God-glorifying lives? And when we talk about marriage, I want the single guys to be thinking exactly the same question. How can I be helping my married friends think about how to have flourishing and God-glorifying marriages? And actually, almost I hope that this series is something of a culture-shaping series. But as we uh, almost, uh, one writer has described the church as a kind of countercultural community. That actually, as we have to kind of craft out this distinctive Christian vision of relationships, as we do that, then we all have a part to play in um, in encouraging that vision, uh, living that vision out, and and teaching that vision to one another. So that's really important. Right, let's turn to the passage. If you want to turn to uh, page 1,670, we're looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Probably there's no other place in the New Testament I would go if I want to talk about uh, marriage and singleness, or certainly singleness. I think it's a very uh, relevant passage for us. So we're going to look at uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 7. I'm going to read a couple, I'm going to read verse 6 to 9, and then I'm going to read verse 25 to 35. I'll say up front, there is an element where Paul is being a little bit enigmatic in some of these verses, so we have to, we're going to work through it and, and unpack what Paul has to say. It may not all make sense on the first reading. So we're looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 6 to 9, and then I'm going to read from 25 to 35. Now, as a concession, not a command, I say this. I wish that all were as I myself am. He's talking about in his condition as a single man. I wish that all were as myself am. But each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. To the unmarried and to the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. And we carry on and pick up from verse 25. Now concerning the betrothed, I have no command from the Lord, but I give my judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. I think that in view of the present distress, it is good for a person to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Do not seek a wife. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a betrothed woman, betrothed by the way, in that it actually means virgin, basically, someone who's not married. 
a betrothed woman marries, she has not sinned. Yet those who marry will have worldly troubles, and I would spare you that. This is what I mean. Brothers, the appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none. Those who mourn as though they were not mourning. Those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing. And those who buy as though they had no goods. And those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it. For the present form of this world is passing away. I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife. And his interests are divided. And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. Let me pray. Lord, thank you so much for your word. Thank you so much that you feed us week by week as we unpack your word. Would you come and feed us? Thank you that that your word says that you have the bread of life. Lord, may this word be like the bread of life to us. Lord, whether we're single or married this morning, would this draw us to you? Would you help us to understand how you would have us live? And most of all, Lord, would you just reveal to us, remind us, show us how you are more satisfying than anything else? We worship you, Jesus. Amen. Amen. So I want to start by talking about the dignity of singleness. You see, right in this passage, you won't have escaped your notice that Paul has a very high view of singleness. Right at the beginning, in verse 7, he says, um, I wish that all were as I myself am. So I wish you were all single like me. But each has his own gift from God, one of one kind, one of another. Very big picture, what Paul is saying here is, Marriage and singleness are both gifts from God. Some people will be called to marriage, others will be called to singleness, but both are a gift from the Lord, each with its own distinct benefits, uh, maybe benefits is the wrong word, um, blessings. Sorry, and immediately, I know what you're thinking. Ignore that. Carry on. <laughs> Strike that from the record, as they say. Um, each with its own blessings and challenges. If anything, Paul is expressing something of a preference for singleness in this passage. And we'll come on to why he does that in a little bit, a little bit later. Now, to be clear, he's not contradicting what you will see in other passages like Ephesians 5, where he talks about the beauty and the, and the glory of marriage and how it points to something, to teach us something about our relationship with God. He's not contradicting that. And in fact, in verse 28, he says, to be married is not a sin. But it's clear that Paul has a very high view of singleness from this passage. The essence of what Paul is saying here is you need not get married. You don't need to get married. In verse 8, he says, To the unmarried and to the widows, I say it is good for them to remain single as I am. He's not forbidding marriage. He's saying you don't need to be married. And in fact, in the middle uh, section, which I haven't read to you, verse 17 to 24, you'll see that he goes through a number of different circumstances. He talks about people who are not Jewish, who are Gentile. He talks about people who are um, slaves. And he basically says to them, you don't need to change your condition to have full status in the family of God. So it's not saying you can't change your condition. To the, to the slave, he says, you know, if you can get your freedom, great. But what he is saying is, you don't need to, if you're a slave, you don't need to become free. If you're Gentile, you don't need to become Jewish. And if you're single, you don't need to become married to have full status in the family and the kingdom of God. In a sense, Paul is emphasizing the dignity of marriage. The uh, dignity of singleness, sorry. But why is he saying this? Well, one of the reasons, I think, is the future hope that he starts to describe in verse 29. When he says, The appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none. And those who mourn as if they were not mourning. Those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing. And those who buy as though they had no goods. And those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it. From the present form of this world is passing away. What Paul is really describing here, there, what he's reminding them of, is their future destiny. When the Messiah came, when Christ came for the first time, he inaugurated the kingdom of God. But Christ is coming back to bring the kingdom of God in all its fullness, to judge the living and the dead, and to bring his total reign and rule on this earth. And he's describing a time where there'll be no more suffering, no more mourning, no more crying, and no more pain. And Paul is telling them that their life now needs to be lived in light of that future reality. 
He's not forbidding marriage. He's not forbidding people to buy and sell things. Of course we will do those things. But he's saying do these things in light of the future. So if you do mourn, you can mourn, but mourn knowing that one day Jesus is coming back to bring an end to sickness and death. Or or you can buy things, but remember that the treasure that you accumulate in this life is, is in one sense, in the light of eternity, worthless because you can't take it with you. And one day we're going to receive a much greater treasure in Christ. One day everything you've accumulated in this life will be destroyed. Now, I think that applies to marriage and singleness too. It's saying if you're not married, that's okay because one day you're going to participate in the final, ultimate marriage of Christ with his church, the ultimate marriage supper, as it were. The bride of Christ will be united with her groom, Christ. So if you don't have a family, what he's saying is don't be too upset because one day all your relational needs will be met in perfect union with the coming king. And if you have one, it should change the way you conduct your marriage and your family. I think it would be not over-focusing on it. Not living in an insular bubble where the only relationships that matter to you are your biological family. He's saying, no, if you're married, uh, live differently in light of the fact that that you now live, for example, in a a church family, in in a spiritual family as well. Actually, if you're single, in some way, your life of single satisfaction in Christ is a picture of the future resurrection reality that we will all be living in. You know, uh, Jesus is challenged by the Sadducees at one point in the Gospels. Uh, Basically, you say to him, you know, they give him an example of a guy who gets married to seven wives. Uh, You know, one wife, she dies. Another wife, it's not a multiple, not bigamy. Um, But uh, marries these different guys. And they say, Jesus, what's going to happen in the resurrection? And, uh, and Jesus is challenged back to them. He says, actually, no, in the resurrection, there will be no marriage. People will neither be given in marriage nor find themselves in marriage. So actually, marriage, in one sense, we could talk about it in the transience of marriage. Of course, marriage is a permanent, lifelong union whilst you are both alive on this earth. But one day, you will not be married. And marriage it has that, that, almost in the light of eternity, a slightly different feeling. Of course, it's not... Uh, wrong to be married in any way or to, to denigrate the importance, the, the value of, the, of marriage for those who are married, but it's to say, look at this differently in light of eternity. Now, really what Paul is doing here is tra- challenging that, what I would call the traditionalist or often kind of what we see in traditional and religious cultures, the preference for marriage. You know, some of you have grown up in these cultures. I think this is certainly true in Britain, probably now maybe, but certainly uh, historically it's been even more true. Um, that people might look at marriage as kind of an essential mark of being an adult. They would say, you know, you've only really hit maturity when you're married. You know, maybe someone from our parents' or grandparents' generation might say to us, you know, when are you going to grow up and get married? That kind of language. Or, um, or maybe even people might say, well, you're not really complete until you're married. And, and whether people say that explicitly or they say it subtly, that kind of idea is, is one of the voices that we would have heard in culture. But actually, and, and I think a friend of ours who's um, grown up in a Christian family, dear Christian parents, um, but at times the pressure and the desire that they express for her to be married um, make it feel like marriage is their ultimate goal for her. They make it feel that only in being married and in starting a family will she have made it. Now, of course, it's not wrong to, to desire marriage, but it's wrong to make it the ultimate goal of our lives. And I argue it's certainly not helpful. Actually, the Christian faith is distinctive in um, carving out and creating a vision of the single life as a viable and flourishing way of life. Uh, Stanley Howass, a professor at Duke University, says this about Christianity, about the history of Christianity. Christianity was the very first religion or worldview that held up single adulthood as a viable way of life. One clear difference between Christianity and Judaism and all other religions is the former, i.e. the Christian, entertainment of the idea that singleness is the paradigm way of life for its followers. What he's saying is that Christianity uniquely, certainly true of its context, the Roman Empire, but true today, I think, too, is unique in terms of carving out this vision of life, a viable, flourishing life as a single person. Think about the Roman context. The Emperor Tiberius, not long, I believe, after uh, Jesus' I can't remember the dates exactly in the Roman Empire, but at some point the Emperor Tiberius uh, put a law in place that said if a woman was a widow, 
She, uh, she was made a widow, like her husband died, which she had to get married within two years. He basically legislated, effectively forced marriage. Um, it's because, obviously, in that context, she couldn't support herself, so he's kind of saying, you can't be a, uh, you've got to get married. But the New Testament has the opposite approach. Widows aren't forced to, marriage, forced to marry, but the church is encouraged to support the widows. In 1, uh, 1 Timothy 5, uh, they're specifically instructed to honor and support the older widows. So the church was to support them in their singleness. The implication here is that singleness is a good thing. So the church has got a very distinctive approach on this subject. And I think there's no more obvious way of seeing that than when you look at the life of Christ. That when we talk about saying people aren't complete or, or, or in some way um, full people if they're, not mar- if they're not married, you just have to look at Christ. This is what Sam Albury uh, says on the subject, on Jesus. He said, he is the example of the perfect man. He is the humanity all of us are called to be, but, none of us, not, but which none of us are. He is the most complete and fully human person who ever lived. So his being married is not incidental. It shows us that none of these things, marriage, romantic fulfillment, sexual experience, is intrinsic to being a full human being. I think this should challenge some of the prevailing ideas around singleness in the church. Sometimes people think of marriage and say, marriage is the way that you become spiritually mature. You know, only when you get married does your selfishness get worked out of you. And I think anyone who's married would tell you that it is true that God can and will use your marriage to, as part of your sanctification in Christ. But of course, God isn't limited to using one relationship to sanctify us, to change us. There are all sorts of ways that God will use our context and our relationships to grow and to change us. Actually, we've got to remember that God is the primary actor in our sanctification, not our circumstances. So, of course, he can achieve his purposes in this way. Secondly, one other myth that I think often I've heard um, from uh, people who are single, or not necessarily people who are single, but voices in the church, they say the reason you're not married is because you're not godly enough. Sometimes people say, well, you just need to pursue the Lord. And when you're godly enough, then God will reward you with a husband or a wife. Again, this, this passage is a, a sincere refutation to that idea because it's saying actually singleness of anything is describing a, a route to undivided devotion to the Lord. There's no sense in which marriage is a reward for spiritual maturity. And I think, to be honest, any kind of speculation on why someone's single and why someone's married is not particularly helpful. It's certainly not. Singleness is certainly not a punishment from God that you're not mature enough. So that's the dignity of singleness. Paul is elevating singleness for us. But second of all, I want to talk about the mission of singleness. When we look at this passage, you have to say, well, why does Paul put such a priority on singleness? He recognizes they're both gifts from God, but says it is good for them to remain single. And really, I think when you look at Paul, what he's saying is the capacity to serve, the freedom that singleness gives you to be able to invest in the lives of others and serve the purposes of God is unparalleled. In verse 28, he says, those who marry will have worldly troubles. Marriage will have all sorts of worldly troubles. The married person will need to focus on the day-to-day needs of their spouse and their children. What about if your spouse gets a serious illness? What about if your spouse is spiritually struggling? Care, um, you know, we've, we've had a little boy about just over eight months old, and we are learning very rapidly that everything takes longer, and life is much harder when you have a child. Actually, there is a, there is a certain level to which marriage just makes more demands on your time. Paul isn't being critical about marriage. I think he's just being realistic. And this should actually puncture some of our, what I would describe as our idolatry of marriage. Sometimes we look at social media, we look at different images, on, and we say, you know, look at a couple's photo or a family, and you say, I wish I had that. Actually, what you're not seeing in that situation is you're not seeing the challenges, the marital disagreements that need to be resolved, the children's disobedience, the hours of lost sleep in parenting. It's unhelpful to compare the highs of marriage with the lows of singleness. Actually, there are always highs and lows in both. We need a more realistic view of marriage. One is not better or worse than the other. Both have their challenges. But I also think what he's speaking to here is the different focus of single than married folk. Married folk are going to focus on the needs of their spouse and their family. Verse 33, the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife. His interests are divided. Not saying that caring for your family isn't really important, But because it's important, you have to devote time to it. But the single person is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord, and has undivided devotion to the things of the Lord. I wonder what you can picture in your mind when you hear that. 
And I worry that some people might hear that and think of like Mary sitting at Jesus' feet, just kind of gazing at him. And then maybe some elements of that. But the, the undivided devotion here, the Greek word behind it can be translated like constant service. Actually, what he's talking about is an undivided ability to focus on the, on the work that the Lord's called us to. And this should fundamentally redefine our understanding of the gift of singleness. Verse 7 says, each one has his own gift from God. And we typically, in the church, I've heard it said that the gift of singleness is kind of the, the special, unusual ability to endure the challenge of singleness. A little bit like a kind of anesthetic in surgery, like almost like you're just kind of an unusual ability to, to basically say, I don't want to be in a relationship. There are a number of problems with this idea. One, it affirms the cultural assumption that marriage is great and singleness sucks, when actually both have blessings and hardships. Secondly, it encourages people to feel bitter because it says they will say, be sitting there saying, well, I'm single and I don't have the gift of singleness. It also encourages um, sexual sin because people say, well, I think this is, I've heard people say this before. Uh, I've got, for example, I've got same-sex attraction. Um, I know I don't have the gift of singleness. I don't enjoy being single. Therefore, the only answer that's left to me is to be in a same-sex relationship. And actually, that's faulty logic because we've misunderstood what the gift of singleness is. The biggest problem, however, with this is it just misunderstands what the gift means in the New Testament. Every time when we use the word gift in the New Testament, charisma, um, it's really talking about spiritual gifts like prophecy, administration, healing. Those gifts are for the benefit of others. Every time you're given a gift in the New Testament, it's to be blessing to others. You know, think about, um, um, I didn't, I promise I didn't play much Dungeons and Dragons at school. But uh, I, I really didn't, if any. Um, I, I just remember sitting in a room while some people were playing. But, the, um, but in, in, um, in Dungeons and Dragons, I think, and there's certain computer games that have this same thing. Everyone has, you've got a kind of a character, set of different people, and each one has a kind of special ability. And, you know, like when you're, in, when you're in this game, like you're like, oh, we come to this enemy, we need this person with that special ability. And that's the kind of idea, I'm, I'm sorry, I'll come up with a less nerdy example in the future. But the, that kind of idea, of everybody having something to share, every gi- everybody having a gift which blesses the body, that is our understanding of gifts in the New Testament. For example, this week we had Salt, uh, salt Course, week five. Busy came and gave a fantastic testimony, and she has a gift of an evangelist. There's no question that that woman is a gifted evangelist. But she didn't go home, walking home, saying, oh, wow, I love this gift of evangelism. It makes me feel so good. The main beneficiaries of her gift of evangelism were all the people who heard her say her wonderful story. So gifts are primarily about blessing others. What I, think I'm, what I would argue then is that if you're single, you have the gift of singleness. The gift of singleness is primarily about whether or not you are single. Some people have the gift of marriage, other people have the gift of singleness. And it describes the circumstances that you find yourself in. For as lo- so for as long as you're single, you have the gift of singleness. This should radically redefine our understanding of singleness. And this is why I wanted to call today Christian singleness. Because what I'm arguing for is a radically different understanding of singleness than our culture would have. Mariella Frostrop, the journalist, uh, described singleness as solvency, like basically being well off, great sex, and a guilt-free life. And I think in some ways that picks up on some of the strands of how our culture views singleness. We look at it as basically the ability to be free, do what you want, when you want, and enjoy your own time and your own flexibility. I don't think Paul would disagree with the idea that singleness gives you a greater freedom, but the radical change is that he would say that freedom is then to be used to bless others. It's like fundamentally changing the direction of how you think about singleness. He's radically redefining singleness to be far less individualistic than our culture might tell us. See, and in this way, marriage and singleness are actually more similar than you realize. Because actually both, I mean, Andrew read that passage, Mark 10 about how Christ has come to serve. And actually those who will be great in the kingdom will be those who follow Christ's example of service. And actually both married and single people will live this life of service. The married people will be serving at least a good chunk of their their service will be to their biological family, to the people who they're responsible to. But actually also for the single person, their life will be a life of service and sacrifice, driven out of love. They'll also see it as both a costly privilege In exactly the same way, the difference will come is that for single people, that service is not something that will just come to them on a plate. Actually, they will need to put themselves in situations where they can take responsibility and serve others. That's the the distinction I would make. The single person has to find find them and seek those opportunities out, to find people to lay their life down for. I think this makes singleness far more attractive and not less attractive. One of the reasons that singleness looks uh, less attractive to us is because it feels purposeless. 
And actually, this would say, no, there is a purpose to your singleness. You can use it to bless others. What could this look like? I think it could look like radically investing your life in, your, in, the, friends of your colleague, uh, in the lives of your colleagues and your friends, serving your colleagues, helping them to see God's love in the way you uh, love them and spend time with them. And hopefully, as time goes on, finding opportunities to share Christ with them. Finding ways to serve your community. There's a... a uh, homeless shelter, night shelter just starting up at Weber Street and London City Mission. You can have a meal together with some guys who are coming off the streets and uh, help them provide a warm and hospitable environment to host them for the evening. Investing in supporting families in the church. As I think about our, our son who's just eight months old, we are thinking, wouldn't it be fantastic to have lots of different influences in his life? We know we are not the full picture, me and my wife, and we need, he will need other positive people in his life. And I look at the guys at Grace and just am so excited about that as he grows up. Find ways to encourage others in the church. Organize a book club, organize a breakfast, all sorts of different ways we can invest in the lives of others. But the fundamental thing to this is take on responsibility. Don't wait until you're married to take on responsibility. In a sense, we're saying is don't waste your singleness. David Platt says this, your greatest impact on the kingdom will not come in spite of your singleness, but because of your singleness. Singleness manifests the gospel in the way that we can, in, in that we can say that Jesus is enough for this life. Many people in our culture are convinced that sex is a necessary part of life, is necessary for human flourishing. And when the single celibate Christian says, no, Jesus is enough for me, I'm satisfied by him and by the community that he's placed me in, they are a beautiful, countercultural, shining light to a sex-obsessed generation. Which brings me on to my final point, the intimacy of singleness. Some of you will be asking, as you read Paul's words, how is Paul able to make such a dispassionate appeal? You know, you might say, okay, I recognize the opportunity that singleness affords to be able to bless others. But is Paul like some sort of superhuman? Does he not have relational needs? How can he put such a preference on singleness when it feels like it it, it gives me less opportunity for intimacy in my life? And what I want to encourage you with today is that Paul's vision of singleness is far more intimate than you realize. We need to step back from the text and remember that this teaching is not just dangling in the air. We have to look at the life and ministry of Paul. Actually, when you look at Paul's ministry, you see that he has so many deep relationships across the churches that he's writing to. Think about the way he describes Timothy and Titus. When he writes to them, he calls them his his true child. He loves them like sons. Think about every single letter. Half of them have got like long extended greetings to people and at the end the same. He's urging Timothy and Titus to come and visit him. Come and visit me before winter starts sometimes. He wants to spend time with them. Actually, he not just wants to spend time with them. These men are absolutely necessary for his strength. Actually, he needs these men in his life. They're not just friends and acquaintances. He's strengthened by them. You see the same when he goes to Corinth and he goes to Priscilla and Aquila. He spends time at their house. He works with them. And then a number of letters afterwards, he then writes and says, greet Priscilla and Aquila. They're deep friends of his. So Paul is able to call people to a life of costly sacrifice because he is in these kind of deep, intimate relationships. Why does our reality not feel like that? Well, I would argue it's because we have an idolatry of romantic relationships. Our secular culture has made an idol of romantic relationships. And some people will say to you, how can you be happy and single? When I became a Christian, as for reasons that will become clear in a few weeks, I had the full expectation that I was going to be single for the rest of my life when I became a Christian. And I invited my brother up to come and stay with me. And I was living with a few guys a year after uni. And he spent the weekend with us. And then afterwards, I had a phone call from him. And he said to me, I don't understand how you can be so happy and be single. Like, I don't understand how you can basically say, I'm never going to be in a relationship and that you can be happy about that. As you know, life has turned out differently for me. But my point is, we live in a world that is bewildered by the idea that you can be happy and not be in a romantic relationship. Part of the reason for that is we confuse sexuality and intimacy. We think that if if you... The only way to experience intimacy in life is is sexual intimacy, uh, is in sex. But actually, obviously... Anyone who's had a one-night stand will tell you that sex and intimacy are not necessarily connected, that you can have sex without intimacy, and you can have intimacy without sex. And actually, I think part of the other reason for this is we have far too low a view of friendship. We've downgraded friendship. We confuse digital friendships for real relationships. The digital ecosystem encourages us to um, kind of uh, think of having lots of friends rather than just a few and investing. 
We live in a transient context, so we hold back from investing in relationships because there's a possibility that people will move on in the future. And thirdly, we, I don't think even sometimes we can't even imagine deep friendships without sex. Um, what I mean by this is uh, Sam Albury uh, was, was telling an anecdote of how he went on the BBC website and he was reading some of the letters between some World War I soldiers. And, the, and, and there was like real friendship and deep intimacy in these letters between these soldiers. And he said, look to the comments and people were just saying, well, they must be gay. Because people couldn't imagine that you could be friends and not have a kind of eros, not kind of have a romantic uh, impulse behind that. Actually, I think as Christians, we assume that marriage is the only answer for our need for intimacy. We read uh, Genesis 2.18. It says, it is not good for man to be alone. And the second part, I will make a helper fit for him. So we conflate these two ideas and we say, well, absolutely, we all have relational needs. But then we quickly jump to the only answer to that is marriage. But actually, as you see in the New Testament, that's far from reality. That actually, if anything, in line with marriage is the new covenant community that you've been called into and the friendships that emerge as part of that. So we need a radically more substantial view of friendship. And actually, this goes for single and married folk. We need, we need to take the example, the biblical example of deep, sincere friendships and apply it to our context. Proverbs has a wealth of advice about what friendship should look like. I'll just give you one or two. Proverbs 18.24. A man of many companions may come to ruin, but there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. Good friendship requires that you be selective. We're not called to be friends with everyone. Of course, we're called to love everyone and live in this deep community. But actually, friendship's going to necessarily involve being selective and investing in a few people well. You need to be intentional about this. Good friendship doesn't just happen. Who are you going to invest in? At the beginning of the year, I, I thought, okay, I've got to, I just wrote a list of guys outside the church um, who I'm just going to really be intentional with and make sure I'm connecting with regularly, who are my closest friends. Proverbs 27, 9. Oil and perfume make the heart glad, and the sweetness of a friend comes from his earnest counsel. That word earnest counsel can also be translated as counsel of the soul. Actually, what he's talking about here is a vulnerability, a willingness to open your life up together. That comes with that kind of commitment. You know, are you willing to, for your friends to really see your soul, to really see who you are, to really know you? To, are you willing to tell them how you're doing, how you're doing spiritually? What's discouraging you? What's encouraging you? When you do this, I think you'll find friendships uh, dramatically more fulfilling. I mean, for me personally, friendships have probably been one of the main ways that I've grown spiritually. They've been the main, one of the primary influences on my spiritual growth. I want to raise your expectations for the potential of friendship. And this in 2 Samuel, these are the words from David to Jonathan, which I think just encapsulate it. I'm distressed for you, my brother, Jonathan. Very pleasant have you been to me. Your love to me was extraordinary, surpassing the love of women. How often has a friend described your love for them as extraordinary? But there's one final point I want to make, and that is, that, is, is to draw on our relationship with God. I wonder if there's more to the undivided devotion to the Lord that Paul wants from us here. When we speak about the necessity of friendship in our lives, that doesn't replace the ultimate truth that they are necessary but not sufficient to meet our relational needs. Single or married, we recognize that the ultimate answer to our relational longings is found in relationship with God. To Timothy, Paul describes being deserted by his friends but being comforted by God. He says, At my first defense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. May it not be charged against them. But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me, so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles, Gentiles might hear it. Paul's been deserted, but the Lord stood by him. Humans are fallible. The only truly faithful relationship we have in our lives is uh, God alone who is faithful. Even though Paul is in deep relationships, the ultimate source of his strength and satisfaction is his relationship with God. Just as we, have, in some sense, have a danger of ignoring friendships, there's also a danger that we might look to human relationships to, comp- uh, to fill, really, a gap that only God can fill in our lives. Francis Schaeffer puts it like this, We are finite, and therefore we do not expect to find final sufficiency in any human relationship, including marriage. The final sufficiency is to be found only in relationship with God. If a man tries to find everything in a man-woman or a friend-friend relationship, he destroys the very thing he wants and destroys the one he loves. He sucks it, them dry, he eats them up, and they, as, the, as well as the friendship, are destroyed. But as Christians, we do not have to do that. The very reason we're able to pursue costly, vulnerable friendships is because we have received a love. 
which gives us such a security and contentment, which allows us then to push into the world in a risky way to build deep relationships with those around us. In Christ, we have found the perfect friend. In fact, he's such a good friend that he was willing to lay down his life for us. Those wonderful, beautiful words in 1 John, greater love has no one than this, than someone lay down his life for his friends. There's no question that Christ is the ultimate answer to our relational longing we experience. In some measure, we'll experience that now as the Holy Spirit brings uh, uh, the experience and conscious awareness of his love to us. But in some sense, we will only experience the fullness of that when we meet him face to face. When he comes back to judge the living and the dead, we will be united as Christ to his bride. And only then, really, single or married, will our full relational longings be met. So as we reflect on this subject... I'm aware there's lots to think about, for you, um, but I wonder if there's just a few responses I want to suggest to you. There'll be some of you who feel that singleness is um, a struggle, a, a pain. And I think it's completely legitimate to come to God this morning saying, this is really hard. Lord, will you, will you come and meet me in my struggle? Will you come and meet with me and walk with me as I walk through the shadow of the valley of death? That's completely legitimate and right. Of course, there may also be a need to repent of any anger or, or bitterness that may, have a, that may be happening. We all do this. Sometimes we get annoyed with our circumstances and we can get bitter or angry. And we do need to bring that to God and repent of it as part of that. There may be others of you who say, actually, I hear this and I want to lay down my singleness as service to God. Actually, I want to consecrate my life to him. And of course, that's true for all of us, whether we're married or single. Some of you may think specifically that you need to respond to God's call to build deep relationships with others. For, for married guys, you know, is your family a really kind of semi-permeable unit where people are coming in and out? Or have you focused too much on that biological reality without seeing the bigger picture? But fundamentally, for all of us, the answer is the same, which is to recognize that God is ultimately sufficient. He is our greatest satisfaction. And really, this all comes down to the question of trust. At the very center of it all, we're asking, can you trust God that he says he is enough for you? He and the community he's put around you is enough for you to satisfy you and fulfill you. Of course, it will not be perfect. Of course, there'll be challenges and pain. And, you know, we live in a fallen world. We're not expecting everything to be perfect. But can you trust him that he is enough until one day you're reunited with your groom, with Christ? Let me pray. Lord, we want to come to you together as one people. One people in all sorts of different relationships, but united in you. United with a recognition that you alone are our saviour. You alone are our satisfaction. You give us the bread of life. Your love is better than life, so our lips will praise you. And we want to say that together. Some of us are saying that through gritted teeth, but we all want to say together that your love is better than life. And we will praise you. Lord, we want to cry out to you. We want to say, will you come and meet with us? We want to trust you. We want to worship you. We recognize your goodness. Would you help us to see your goodness, both as we walk through the land of the living and as we walk through the land of the shadow of death? We praise you, Jesus. Amen. Amen. We're going to um, take a few minutes to hear a testimony from Naomi. Oh, there you are. I was wondering if you were here for a second. I was like, it's like panic. I could pretend to be you. <laughs> um, yeah, so Naomi's such a good friend uh, to me and to, to, uh, to many of you in the church. And she, she was one of the people who joined in the very early days, um, in the first term that we, we existed as a church. And uh, in the years that I've known Naomi, I know she's wrestled. Um, and in her thoughts and in her heart with the, um, the reality of singleness and there's been highs and there's been lows um, but she's it, it come through with the deeper wisdom and grace um, that's been a benefit to people that she's spoken to and who've, um, who, who know her and so um, I really want you to welcome her to come and share a little bit of a testimony now so will you welcome Naomi? Hello. Um, thank you so much, Jeremy. It's so wonderful to be part of a church where singleness is spoken about at all and 
but yeah, given so much dignity and worth, um, it's really wonderful. So I'm really grateful for that. Um, so yeah, I just want to share some of my story with you. Um, so a sort of pivotal point for me was about three years ago, I was sitting on uh, this balcony uh, on the island of Angistri in Greece, and I was looking out in the morning on the most beautiful sunrise and looking out over the sea, and I felt completely miserable. And the reason I felt miserable is because I had just turned 29, and I was on a holiday with my parents. <laughs> and I love my parents so much, but that was not what I really wanted to be doing in a very romantic setting. Um, and I just felt very, very sad about being single. And um, I also felt fed up of being sad about being single. Um, and I just remember praying to God and just saying, this, this has to stop. I can't keep feeling like this. So first of all, I think it's important to affirm that um, there is a real grief that can come with, with singleness. Proverbs says, hope deferred makes the heart sick. Um, and I think we have to acknowledge if we are single, the, the deep grief um, that that can, that can feel like. Um, but I, I can stand before you today and say that three years later, um, I do feel content in singleness. And that is honestly just the work of God in my life, particularly using people in this church. So I think there were things that I did that um, fed my discontentment and things I do now that feed my discontentment and things that, that helped me uh, to feel more content. Um, so there were three main issues that I think fed my discontentment in singleness. The first one was idolatry around marriage and relationships. I think Jeremy outlined some of the ways in which we can have the wrong thinking around those things. The second one was seeking contentment in the wrong places. And thirdly, not understanding the gift of singleness and the nature of contentment. So firstly, idolatry around marriage and relationships. So um, I was that person, thank you, Jeremy, who read the Jane Austen novels. I watched all the 90s rom-coms and wept over them. Um, so I really idolized relationships and marriage and you know, was just waiting for that Mr. Darcy to, to come through the door one day. Um, and so, yeah, it, it really was an idol in my life, and, and I'm sure there's, there's many probably the women but who relate to me. Um, and the problem really was my expectations versus my reality. I thought God owed me a husband. I thought that this was an inevitability. So when I was reaching my 30th birthday, it just felt like something, something wasn't right. God had made some dreadful mistake because I planned to get married when I was 24. That was the plan. Then I was going to have kids when I was around 28, sorted. But reaching my 30th birthday, nothing's happening. Um, so, yeah, I think I, I had a lot of idolatry of, of marriage, and I genuinely believed that marriage would make me happier. And I think I've, I've been really grateful to have heard from different people who are married in this church. And, uh, you know, people have shared some of, the, some of the realities of marriage and some of the struggles that come with it. And that's really helped, I think, um, me, me have a, a better uh, understanding of the struggles of marriage. And I can say now that I really don't think marriage is better than singleness. I think they both have great, great aspects to them and, and some difficult aspects to them. So secondly, seeking contentment in the wrong places. So because I idolize marriage, um, I believe that that was the main source of contentment and intimacy for me. So this led me to seek intimacy in the wrong places um, because I was frustrated that that wasn't happening in the way I thought. Um, how many people have read the book Captivating? Yeah, like three people. Okay. Um, <laughs> it was popular back in the day. So um, it's a bit of a cheesy book. And my mum absolutely hates it. But for me, it really resonated with me. So basically, um, it's about how at the heart of a woman is this desire to be pursued by a man. And then there's a book, Wild at Heart, which talks about how man is the pursuer. And I, th this really resonated with me because um, I really desired to be pursued by a man. And be because that wasn't happening to me in, in church in the right context... I, that led me to do to, to two things and to, to kind of exhibit sinful behavior in two ways. The first thing was that um, it gave me a real, um, a real sense of low self-esteem. Um, it really attacked my sense of self-worth. And I, I genuinely believe that there was something wrong with me. Um, I thought maybe I wasn't pretty enough. Maybe um, I wasn't godly enough. Um, I always wished I could be like one of those sweet, quiet Christian girls um, said I'm pretty loud and opinionated and I was really annoyed about that um and uh yeah I just I genuinely thought there was something wrong with me and actually God really uh, used uh, a single woman in this church Jenny Pollock to 
uh, to speak into this area of my life. And one day I went to, to meet with her and um, I hadn't told any of this to her. And she said, before, before we met today, I prayed and I felt that God wants to say to you, it's not about you. And actually there's, there's nothing you can do to magically make marriage happen. You can't make yourself godly enough to just make it happen. God's not going to reward you with it. So that really, that, that really broke that for me, I think. Um, so the second way that I think I sort of exhibit sinful behavior from this desire to be pursued is that when I am pursued by somebody who, who isn't a Christian, who doesn't love Jesus, um, it's very, very difficult for me to, to say no to that. And it's incredibly tempting for me. Um, and actually, eight months ago, I met somebody who pretty relentlessly pursued me. And I found myself totally addicted to this person's attention and uh, was a massive idiot and uh, didn't flee that situation when I should have done. So if you're in any situation like that, just just run, just, just get out, uh, because I didn't. And I've now spent the last eight months extricating myself from a really painful situation where I had become quite emotionally attached to someone who was completely wrong for me in every way um, because I had been so addicted to the, the attention they were giving me. Um, so God's taught me a lot about intimacy um, in, in the last eight months. And I think the reason why I was um, so tempted eight months ago is because I'd been studying law for two years. And every waking moment was spent studying law and actually I hadn't been investing in, in really good intimate relationships. And amazingly, it's how good God is. Over the last eight months, I have, through, through walking with people through this, through people coming alongside me, I have experienced such intimacy in, in those friendships. And so God has actually used this really very painful experience for my good um, and, and has grown intimacy in my, in my relationships. So finally, um, I didn't understand the gift of singleness and the nature of contentment. Um, I, I thought that the gift of singleness was some kind of magic uh, ability you had to be, to be happy to be single. Um, and uh, yeah, I think one of the biggest challenges for me was realizing that whatever we say about ourselves as single people, we are also saying about Jesus as a single person. So if I'm wallowing in self-pity, which I have done for many years, I suggest there's something wrong with me that uh, my life isn't fulfilled by being a single person. So therefore, I'm saying Jesus must have had something wrong with him. He can't have had a fulfilled life. I think we have to, we have to just keep remembering that Jesus was single. I think Jeremy's done a really good job of outlining how this gift of singleness can kind of manifest itself and how it can be an encouragement to the church. But something I just wanted to add was um, that I think one of the biggest gifts for me, uh, the blessings of singleness, is in a really bizarre, bizarre way, singleness is the one thing that keeps me totally dependent on God. Um, and that is the greatest blessing, and that is the, the greatest way that I am sanctified. And actually, just sharing in the Q&A session earlier, I just realized that God has led me to this place now where I, so I work for a pro-life organization. I'm, I'm a policy officer and advocate and have got to a point where I, I have to be willing to be publicly humiliated for what I'm standing up for, which is, let's face it, incredibly unpopular. Um, and I don't think I would be able to do this if I hadn't faced so many years of having to depend on God and um, keep laying down um, my life. So I think, I think singleness... Um, yeah, I, th I don't think contentment looks the way we think it does. I think we, it's not about someone who's just happy all the time and so at peace. I think uh, contentment looks like someone who every day takes up their cross and counts everything as lost for the sake of knowing Christ. It's someone who awaits their heavenly home and leans on God in the midst of uh, whatever darkness they're walking through and holds on to that deep joy that comes from the gospel. Um, and I think the biggest joy is that... Um, you know, one day I will be married with all of you to, to Christ, who is our bridegroom. And that's, that's the marriage that I look forward to and the certain hope that I have for the future. Thank you.